Well, good morning, Wooddale Church. Hey, I'm glad that you're here. If you're joining us online, I'm glad that you're joining us as well. And that's because we are in week two of a brand new series here at Wooddale that asks what I believe to be the most important question that any of us can ever ask in this life. And that question is, who is Jesus? Last week, Pastor Dale kicked us off with the series by introducing us to Jesus as someone who changes the relationships in our lives. In particular, we saw that Jesus changes the relationship that we have with ourselves, that he changes the relationships that we have with others, and that ultimately he will change the relationship that we have with God. So with all of these changing relationships, that's going to lead us into a conversation that we're going to have today about how Jesus impacts and influences how we think about and how we experience this thing called community. And community is something that is incredibly important to us. In fact, I just love that video that just played because it it just showed the importance that community has in our lives and how we think about it and just the high value that we have of community. One of the reasons that community is so important to us is because each and every one of us has an innate need to belong. And that need for belonging comes with a lot of emotion in our lives. I remember when I was a freshman in high school, I signed up for the cross country team. And our first set of practices was before school began. And so I didn't know anybody on the team going into that first day of practice. And so I remember sitting in the passenger seat of my mom's Ford Explorer as we're driving to school that first day of practice. And as we got closer and closer to the building, that sense of anxiety and all those questions about belonging just kind of washed over me. And I was was wondering, you know, Am I going to fit in with this team? Am I going to be able to keep up with these runners? Is anybody going to talk to me? Am I going to have any friends? Will I belong? And you know, that sense of belonging is not limited to our youth. In fact, just a few months ago, I joined a running club at a local health club. And as I was driving over to my first meeting with that running club, I had that same sense of anxiety. I was asking those same questions that I was as a freshman in high school. I was driving over going, am I going to be able to keep up with these runners? You know, is anybody going to talk to me? Am I going to fit in? Am I really joining a running club for fun? And you know, I wasn't just joining a running club for fun. Actually, one of the reasons that I joined this running club was because of Adopt7. Uh, That's something we've been talking about here at Wooddale for a while. Pastor Dale mentioned it last weekend in the message. Adopt7 is the idea that you and I come into frequent contact with people in our lives, and many of them don't know about the hope that can be found in Jesus. And so we're committing to seven of them to pray for them, to try to serve them, and when God provides the opportunity, we'll share with them what God has done in our life. Now, as a pastor, I spend like all of my time with church people which is incredible. I love my job, and and I just consider it to be a huge blessing to be able to do this for a living. But that also means that I need to be really intentional about spending time with people outside of the church so that I can let them know about Christ. So that was one of the reasons that I joined this running club, and I was glad that I had some of that extra motivation because my first experience with this running group left, uh, well, it didn't quite meet my need for belonging. I walked into the health club, and I saw a group of people standing in a circle stretching, and I thought, those are probably the runners. And I walked up to the person in charge. I said, hey, is this the running club? And he looked at me and said, "Uh, yep. (laughs) 
And I said, well, hey, that's great. I, I saw your information online. It said that I didn't need to register. I could just kind of show up that you're always accepting some new people. So I'm here. I'd love to run with you. Is, is it okay if I join you? And he looks back at me and he goes, uh, I suppose. <laughs> that was my welcome, right? And, and the rest of the group was about as outgoing and about as friendly. Uh, and it's taken me a few weeks to kind of break into that group. And, you know, I don't blame them, right? Because community is a difficult thing to manage. And unless we're intentional about trying to be outward focused and trying to make sure that it's easy to break into our communities, it's really easy for any community to kind of start to feel a little exclusive. And that's just because community deals with some complex questions. Questions about, you know, who are we and who's in and who, you know, what are we all about? What are the values of this community? What does it mean to be part of this community? And every community wrestles with the question of who's in, who's out, and how do you know? And Jesus knew that his community, this thing that we now call the church, would wrestle with those same questions. And so he gave his community a set of guidelines for how we should behave in community. So this morning, I want to invite you to imagine with me that we are brand new recruits to this community that Jesus has created. It was a community that he said would do life together and a community that would change the world. And I want you to imagine that we're hearing his words for the first time. Now, if you're new to church or you're new to following Jesus, or, or maybe you're here because you're skeptical and you're trying to, uh, you know, lean into this question about who Jesus is, but you're just not so sure, you might literally be hearing these words for the first time. But for those of us that have heard them before, I want to invite us just for a moment to set aside our thinking and experience about church membership or denominational affiliation and just hear the words of Jesus anew. Because Jesus does something surprising with how he positions these guidelines. See, every community that I'm part of all has guidelines set up to serve those within the community. Right, the health club that I'm part of, it has guidelines set up to serve those who are already members of the health club. The schools that I have been part of or that my children are a part of, they're all set up with guidelines to serve students who are already enrolled at that institution. The homeowners association I belong to benefits, actually they don't benefit anybody. <laughs> but if they did, they would benefit those that are already part of the neighborhood. Because that's what communities do. They benefit those who are inside the community. Except Jesus. See, Jesus establishes a set of guidelines that are aimed at breaking down our tendency toward exclusivity. Let me say that again. Jesus gives to us a set of guidelines that are aimed at breaking our tendency toward exclusivity. Let me show you what I mean. Please open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in the sixth chapter, and we're going to begin in verse 20. So Luke, chapter 6, verse 20. As you're turning there, let me kind of set the stage and give you some context. Jesus has just named his 12 apostles, and then he has gathered all of his followers, all of his disciples together, and he gives this message. So we're going to pick up, pick up the story right in verse 20 of Luke 6. Luke records this for us. Looking at his disciples, he, Jesus, said, blessed are you who are poor. 
for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So Jesus creates this sense of community that is going to do life together and change the world. And to this world-changing community, he gives a set of guidelines and values that is saying this community is going to be about the poor, the hungry, mournful, and hated. And that these would be the guidelines that would describe this community. And what's so striking about these guidelines, because they don't seem like a set of values that we would expect from a world-changing community, is that these values are, are in stark contrast to the values of the culture that he was speaking to of the day. In that day, the culture valued wealth. They considered wealth to be a sign that God had seen your righteous acts and was blessing you, and that they believed the reverse was true, that if you were poor or sick, and especially if you were disabled, that it was actually your fault, because somehow you had sinned, and God had seen that sin and was now punishing you because of your sin or the sin of one of your family members. And it was a culture that considered righteousness to be put on display for everybody to see, and there was a high value of keeping up appearances. So in, in other words, the cultural values of the day were, they valued the wealthy, the comfortable, the jovial, and the popular. Kind of sounds a lot like our culture today, doesn't it? So, so how is a community with this set of values going to change the world that has this set of values? And more specifically, how are these values going to break our tendency toward exclusivity. Well, let's take a look at each one and kind of find out. See, in verse 20, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, the word he is using there for blessed means supremely blessed, without concern or without worry. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, it is good to be you when you're poor. And that's in contrast to verse 24, where he's saying, woe or sorrow on you who are rich. So is Jesus against wealth? Well, you know, he certainly cautions us against the temptations that come with wealth, but Jesus is not against wealth, because keep in mind, wealth is always relative. But what he, what he is against is our dependence on wealth. All right, see, when we're dependent on wealth, we don't look to God for our needs, we just look to ourselves for our needs. And Jesus says, if that's you, woe to you, because you've already received your comfort. But blessed, or it's good to be the person who is poor, and the poverty that Jesus is speaking about there is poor in spirit. It's that attitude of understanding that in light of who God is, I really have nothing to offer him. And when we take that humble posture and we have that poverty of spirit, then we are so much more open to what God has for us. And the second blessing is somewhat similar. When Jesus says, blessed are you who hunger now, 
But woe to you who are well fed. The hunger that he's speaking about there is a hunger for God's righteousness. And that's in contrast to those who are well fed or to those who are comforted. And that means comforted by the ways of the world. Because when, when we're resting in the worldly comforts and we seek after worldly comforts, we become distracted. And then we're not chasing after or hungering or longing after God's righteousness. What's it like for you when you're hungry? My wife carries around in her purse some snacks. That way when we're out running errands or we're out shopping with the family and the kids get a little fussy or I get a little fussy, she'll reach into her purse and she'll pull out a snack and kind of slide it over to us. Ah, It just satisfies us. Jesus is, is saying, that is the type of hungering I want you to have for God's righteousness, to only be satisfied by him and not the world. And that leads us to the third blessing, which is those who weep now. And that's in contrast to those who are laughing now. And Jesus is not against having a good time. What he's talking about is that as we pursue God's righteousness, we start to become increasingly aware of our sin. And that's in contrast to those who are kind of laughing in the face of God's standards or saying, oh, come on, God doesn't really believe that. God doesn't want you to live that way. And Jesus is saying, woe to you if that's how you approach God. But blessed are you when you're aware of the damage that sin is doing in your life. On Thursday, I was playing basketball with some friends, and I was going up for a shot, and uh, a guy tried to block the ball out of my hand, and he missed, and he hit my finger, and he broke my finger. In fact, if you look at the x-ray, there's just this beautiful separation of the bone right on the x-ray. I made the basket, by the way. (laughs) Probably the last one I'll make for a while. But that's what sin does. Sin breaks things in our lives. In particular, it breaks our relationships. And sin causes a separation between us and God. And when we're aware of the damage that sin is doing in our life and the separation that it's causing between us and God, we become mournful and we weep over that. And Jesus is saying, if you do those first three things, if you are poor in spirit, if you are hungering after God's righteousness, if you're sad and mournful about the sin in your life, then you're probably not going to be super popular. In fact, don't be surprised if you're hated by this world. Because our world doesn't know what to do with people that have these set of values. Because the world values things that are completely opposite. The world values things that are dependent on the world. And Jesus is saying the world is kind of made uncomfortable. And so we are going to be hated because of the values that Jesus gives to us. But we are not to chase after popularity. We are to chase after remaining faithful to God, even in the midst of a culture that goes the other way. See, the values that the world has are all centering around this idea of some exclusive dependence on the world. They're all, they're all things of status. And so the world views individuals as, as people to kind of be other measuring sticks for how well we're doing. And that's what all of those worldly values are. When, when you're wealthy, it's because you're wealthy in relation to somebody else, or you live more comfortably, or you have a better time than someone else, or you're more popular. And Jesus is saying, not my community. 
My community doesn't view people as measuring sticks for you to get ahead. My community is all about understanding who we are in relationship to God and just simply valuing people, not worldly dependence. And when we understand that we are part of Jesus' community, we begin to truly value what he values. And what he values is extending love to others. And just in case we missed that point, Jesus underscores it in verse 27. Let's look at what Jesus continues to say. Starting in verse 27, he says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. You know, conventional wisdom and our culture tell us that when someone hits you, you hit them back. When someone takes something from you, you take it back. And Jesus says, not my followers. And just to be clear, so we don't try to wiggle our way out of this one, when Luke records this for us, the word that he chose for enemy did not describe someone from a rival group or someone that we're in competition with or from a different people group. The word he used for enemy was a personal enemy. Yeah, that person. That person who is trying to get you fired. That person who wants to see you publicly humiliated. That person who is trying to embarrass you in front of your friends or your family. That person who is trying to cheat you, who is trying to steal from you, the one who is actively working for your harm. That person we are to love. And the love that Christ talks about there it is not a brotherly or sisterly love. It's not a romantic love. It is an action-oriented love. In particular, Jesus says that we're supposed to do three things for those who are against us and mistreating us. In verse 28, he says that we are to pray for them. You know, I don't know about you, but when someone mistreats me, my go-to response isn't always to go to my knees to pray for them. Often, if I'm honest, it is for me to, to turn around and talk about that person to other people. And Jesus is saying, you shouldn't do that. That's not what we need to do. When someone mistreats us, our first response should be to pray for them. And not just pray about them, but pray for them. And the second thing that we're supposed to do in verse 29 is not to retaliate. When Jesus describes there being slapped on the cheek, that would have been a great insult in that culture. And Jesus is saying, when you are insulted, don't seek revenge. And our culture loves revenge. All right, we, we make movies about it and TV shows about it. We, 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 we tell stories of revenge, and Jesus is saying, but not my community. We don't seek revenge. Instead, the followers of Jesus are to do something so much more radical. We are to be generous toward those who are harming us. Now, there's a beautiful scene in the musical that was later made into a movie, Les Mis. And in one of the early scenes, 
one of the main characters, Jean Valjean, has just been released from prison. He's out on parole, and he's having a difficult time. And a local bishop sees this and invites him into his home to help him out. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean repays the bishop's hospitality by stealing from him. The bishop catches him in the act, trying to stuff silver into his bags, and Jean Valjean panics, and he strikes the bishop down, and he grabs some of the silver, and he flees. Well, the next day, Jean Valjean just runs into the police, and they begin going through his things, and they discover the silver. They realize that he's been at the bishop's home, and they put two and two together, so they arrest him, and they bring him back to the bishop. And the bishop sees them walking in with Jean Valjean in handcuffs, And he responds to the police, thank you for bringing him back. And he looks at Jean, and he says, you left in such a hurry that you forgot the most expensive piece. And he goes in, and he grabs the silver candlesticks, and he comes, and he gives them to this man who had assaulted him. And the police are astonished, and they have no reason to hold him now, so they unhandcuff him, and they leave. And as they leave, Jean turns to the bishop, and he says to him, in response to this charity, why are you doing this to me? And the bishop says, with this silver, I have redeemed you. Go now and become an honest man. Church, on an infinitely larger scale, Jesus, because of his generous act of giving himself on the cross to take the punishments for our sins, he has redeemed us so that we too can become changed people. And what's amazing to me is when I look at how Jesus endured the cross, he displayed love for his enemies in exactly the same way that he's calling us to love our enemies. When Jesus was being crucified, he looked at those men who were causing him harm, those who were murdering him, and he looked down on them and he prayed for them. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And he didn't retaliate. This was the Son of God that they were crucifying, the one who was present at creation, the one whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given to, Jesus could have called down blindness on all those who were attacking him. He could have called for a legion of angels to come to his aid and to his defense, and yet he didn't do any of that. He just humbled himself and allowed them to crucify him so that you and I wouldn't have to face the consequences for our sin because God was generous toward us. And when was he generous toward us? Did Jesus do this because we had been living such a great and such a righteous life and he wanted to reward us for our good behavior? No, that wasn't, that wasn't how it worked. Paul tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, when we were enemies of God, when we were living in rebellion, doing it our own way, God loved us enough to die for us so that we might be changed by that love and then become part of this community that he was creating that would be on mission to share that love with others. That's what this community is about 
And that's what this community has always been about. Former enemies of God transformed by the love of Christ who are now on mission to share that love with others. Some of the stories from the early church show that that's always been part of our community. Just a few years after Jesus' death and resurrection, he ascended to heaven and gave the Holy Spirit to his disciples. And the church just started to explode. And as the church and this new community of followers of Jesus begin to grow, so did, just as Jesus predicted, the hatred for this new community. In fact, there was one man from Tarsus by the name of Saul that made it his life's mission to get rid of this community of followers of Jesus. And one day, Saul was on the road to a town called Damascus, and he intended to go to Damascus and to round up a bunch of Jesus followers and to throw them into prison. And on that road, Jesus appears to him in his glory, and it it causes Saul to become blind. He can no longer see. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Saul suddenly understood that Jesus was in fact the Son of God, and this community that he was trying to exterminate was God's community. And he was wrong, and it wrecked him. Meanwhile, in Damascus, the city that Saul was intending to head to, there was a follower of Jesus named Ananias. And God called to Ananias, and said, Ananias, I need you, and I'm paraphrasing now, but I need you to go to this certain home, and there is a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus that's there, and I need you to pray for him so that his sight will be restored. And Ananias says what you and I would say. He says, God, are you, this is the man that is causing so much havoc among your holy people. And God says, go, for he is my chosen instrument. And so Ananias goes. And he walks into this home. Can you imagine? And there before him is Saul, the one who has caused so much damage and so much hardship for this new community that had been formed. And Ananias would have been looking at the man that was responsible for all the trouble. And rather than retaliate, rather than seek revenge, and rather than just leave and run away, Ananias generously refers to Saul as brother Saul. And he lays his hands on him and he prays for him. And Saul's sight is restored. And then Saul is generously welcomed into Ananias and the other disciples in Damascus' company. And Saul is completely transformed by the love of Jesus. So much so that he now commits the rest of his life to go out and to further this community that he was once trying to get rid of. Because that's what our community is about. We are made up of people who used to be against God, and because of Jesus' great love for us, we have been transformed by that love and by that grace and by his mercy, and we are now welcomed into a new community that is committed to sharing that love with other people. Do you want to be part of this community? Jesus invites you to do so. So if you're here and you've been wrestling with those questions about who is Jesus and what is this community called the church, maybe you've had some bad experiences with the church in the past and you just have a whole lot of questions, some things that you want to ask, some places that, you know, the things that you're not even sure where to ask these questions, then we have a brilliant opportunity for you.
Colin mentioned it at the beginning of our service. It's called Starting Point. And Starting Point is simply a conversation about faith, and it's a conversation for us to talk about who is Jesus and what is this community of people that follow him. And if you're looking to go deeper into community or engage with Jesus in a new way, Starting Point is for you. So as soon as this service is over, you can head right outside, out in front of door number one or out in front of door number two. There is a table out there with information about Starting Point, with people that are there that would love to talk with you about Starting Point, and you can get signed up today. If you're watching us online, you can go right to our homepage, and there's a link for Starting Point information for you as well. But if God is stirring in your heart, take that next step, and Starting Point may be that next step. So how about for the rest of us? Those of us that are part of this community of followers of Jesus. Well, I believe that we need to take the words of Jesus incredibly seriously. And that we need to allow his instruction to break down our tendency toward exclusivity. And and that means that when people come into contact with our community, it needs to feel unlike any other community that they've ever come into contact with. In other words, it needs to be like the opposite experience of what I had with that running club. It needs to be outward focused, and and we need to welcome and greet people well who engage with our community. In fact, I believe this. I believe that there is no other place on the planet where you should be greeted better than at church. Because if Jesus is with us, if we are his community, and when we gather together, we are worshiping and celebrating him, then then that's something that, that we should be excited about. Because when someone comes in and they experience our community, they don't experience something. They experience someone. And that someone should transform their lives because of his love and his mercy and his forgiveness that he offers to them. And so that means that all of us who are followers of Jesus, we are all on the welcome team for this new community. And our welcome shouldn't be just limited to this building. But when we are out in the community, when we are out doing our lives, we need to live on mission to extend the love of Christ to those around us, even those who are not yet part of our community, and especially to those who are against our community, because that's what our community has always done, and because that's who Jesus is, in hopes that those people will experience the love of Jesus and they'll be transformed by it and that they will become part of this world-changing community. Let me pray for us. God, these words are a challenge to us. Lord, the thought of loving our enemies is just such a foreign concept to us. God, we don't even like our enemies, let alone wanting to love them and to be generous toward them. So, Lord, we can look at this passage and, and Lord, just not even know what to do with it. But, God, I pray that it wouldn't be our love that others around us experience, but it would be your love. And so, God, may we just realize that our dependence isn't on ourselves and it's not on this world, but our dependence is only in you. And Lord, might we just be your instruments through which your love can flow to the world around us. 
So God, as we come to the communion table, Lord, would you meet with us here? Lord, would you remind us of your great love for us? Lord, would we continually be changed by your love so we might be able to extend that same love to others, even those who we feel are unlovable? It's in the powerful and the precious name of Jesus we pray all these things. Amen.